0: The way it's heading for most countries that have a very high reliance on China, like South Korea, Japan, Australia, Thailand, you will find a diversification strategy. The Japanese government is now paying Japanese companies to leave China because they feel that there is an over-reliance on an unreliable partner and the growth prospects in China have at least flattened out. I mean, I personally feel that uh, New Zealand companies and the New Zealand government should be following the same strategy, that China will be there and don't neglect it. but Don't, you know, put all your eggs in the China basket, it's absolutely crazy.
1: Kia ora, my name is Jade Gray and welcome to the Asia Hustle Podcast. This is the podcast that provides New Zealand businesses deep, up-to-the-minute insights into complex Asian marketplaces through first-hand accounts from the business people and thought leaders in the midst of all the action. Welcome to the latest episode of Asia Hustle. Today we're chatting with Financial Times Asia editor and fellow Kiwi, Jamil Andalini. Based in Hong Kong, Jamil has been with the FT since 2007 spending most of that time in China where he was named Beijing Bureau Chief in 2011. Uh, Jamil has a long list of accolades in global journalism and was named a young global leader by the World Economic Forum in 2013. In his current role, he oversees Financial Times coverage of the Asia region, directing the work of the regional correspondents and overseeing the editing and commissioning team in Hong Kong. Raised in Wellington, Jamil graduated from Victoria University of Wellington And Auckland University of Technology. Welcome Jamil. Hey Jay. It would seem the health crisis has been handled particularly well in Hong Kong. Uh, Only four deaths in a city of seven and a half million people. However the economy and political landscape look a little more fragile. Is that what you're seeing on the ground up there?
0: Yeah absolutely. So um, Hong Kong with its seven and a half million people has fewer cases than New Zealand. Uh, and many other places, despite this, uh, you know, virus hitting here very early uh, back in January. So obviously it's part of China um, and uh, it's connected to directly connected to mainland China. And so the virus arrived very early. Um, The government, I have to say, uh, mishandled the situation in a terrible way from the beginning, Uh, refused to close the borders basically uh, for political reasons. uh, flip-flopped back and forth. You should wear masks, you shouldn't wear masks. Oh, I'm sorry, you should wear masks. Just a sort of a total mess. But I think there are two defining features that have really uh, set aside Hong Kong when it comes to dealing with this virus. Uh, total cases, I think it's 1,055 still. I mean, not, almost none. And almost all of those have recovered. And as you say, only four deaths. Now, there's one other place that is done probably as well, and I would say it's, it's got more to do with the, the well-functioning government in that place, and that's Taiwan. Uh, you know, So Taiwan has, its cases are under 500, and its deaths are like six, I think, still. So, um, which is quite astonishing. Now, there are two defining features, as I mentioned, between, um, uh, that, that I think are common to Hong Kong and to Taiwan. Uh, number one is a very, very deep distrust of the Communist Party and anything that the Communist Party says in mainland China. Uh, then secondly is the traumatic experience that both places had during uh, SARS in 2003. I think you were you were in Beijing during SARS. I was in Shanghai during SARS, and we remember it well. Um, and so does everybody in Hong Kong, and so does everybody in uh, in Taiwan, they had a terrible, awful experience of this virus that was covered up in mainland China and came to their country, you know, their countries and areas, and uh, you know, wreaked absolute havoc. So the ordinary people in Hong Kong, the moment they heard mysterious virus from mainland China, everyone put on a mask, everyone stopped going outside, everyone basically self-isolated automatically, despite what the hopeless government in Hong Kong was doing. And in Taiwan, the government actually put into place. Uh, after 2003, a whole lot of protocols, which they just rolled out immediately, shutting the borders, uh, a bunch of things, which worked almost perfectly. So, you know, I mean, now, uh, now when it comes to the economy, I mean, this last year was was very bad because of the protests that started sort of around the middle of the year and went all through the year and ramped up. Uh, uh, the The econo- uh, economic situation in Hong Kong was, was bad. They had a recession last year. Um, this year, it's infinitely worse because um, you know, uh, all the vestiges of the economy that were still sort of doing okay in the midst of the protests are now wiped out. So, um, you know, they're talking negative 10% growth for Hong Kong roughly this year. Uh, could be worse. They think it won't get much better next year. Hong Kong is obviously, I mean, if you, to put it bluntly, Hong Kong is the money laundering center for continental China. Um, and if you don't have people from continental China coming here or foreigners coming here to go into China, you don't have much as much as much money laundering. And you certainly don't have all the kind of, uh, uh, extra bits that go along with that. People buying property, tourism from mainland China, you know, 90 something percent of tourists in Hong Kong traditionally are from mainland China. And if they go away because of protests, because of borders closed, uh, you know that's a huge hit to retail, to travel. Uh, so you know those those things aren't massive parts of the overall economy. It's financial services and its trade is the, they make up the big, the big kind of bulk of it. But those things are uh, you know limited as well. And even though retail, hospitality, tourism isn't a major GDP contributor, it's a massive contributor to uh, employment in Hong Kong, obviously. And with those industries basically destroyed, then, you know, employment is, is under serious pressure here. So, yeah, I mean, the economic situation is dire. But we can all go to the beach and uh, Hong Kong never officially, officially locked down. Uh, you know, so um, we're in a better place than many other countries.
1: Do you think, given over the last few years, and I've noticed going to Hong Kong, if I've ever opened my mouth, used uh, Putonghua. Or Mandarin Chinese, I uh, got dirty looks, or basically just never, never talked to. And there has been obviously with the protests and the whole pro democracy movement, um, a real push away from the from the communist rule. Is there a temptation to turn on the mainland t- China tap, um, let tourists back in, let the money laundering back in, whatever keeps the economy alive, um, at the the risk of political freedom?
0: Absolutely. I mean, if you go back to um uh, 2003. The answer in the wake of SARS for Beijing and for the Hong Kong uh, authorities at that time was to before 2003. Before SARS, uh, individual tourists couldn't come to Hong Kong. There was a, there were a whole lot of restrictions on people. They had it, it was very difficult for the average mainlander to come down to Hong Kong. There were a whole lot of rules and restrictions. Uh, those were lifted after 2003 primarily to help boost the economy. So a bunch of stock market listings were sent down here, a bunch of tourists were sent down here. And what you had, according to, actually, I was talking to someone who's a top advisor to Carrie Lam, the chief executive here, and he explained it quite nicely. What you had then was a, uh, basically an economic uh, merging of the mainland and Hong Kong without the social or political merger. And you basically had, uh, you know, mainland money coming down, but, uh, you, you know, resistance from people in Hong Kong for the things that came with it, some of the political attitudes and, um, but but to be clear, you know, it is, uh, in certain circles here, it's totally fine to speak Mandarin because um, there are a million people over the last, since the handover in 1997, when Britain handed Hong Kong back to China, there have been a million people move here uh, permanently from the mainland. So of that 7.5 million people in Hong Kong, 1 million of them are Mandarin speaking mainlanders, including my wife, uh, including a lot of our friends. But certainly the, uh, the majority of people here, I-, I wouldn't say they're xenophobic towards mainlanders, but they're certainly anti-communist uh, party and they're, and they're against what you're seeing here, which is a very, very rapid deterioration in the, uh, the freedoms and the and the rights that that are sort of protected, supposedly protected in Hong Kong, and which don't exist anywhere else in China, free speech, uh, freedom of assembly, um, the right to elect a limited number of people in the legislature. You know, the, these things are under massive threat every day, and are uh, frankly being eroded very very quickly uh, by Beijing with an active policy of eroding these these rights and freedoms. But with the uh, very um, active participation and collusion of of the Hong Kong administration, which you know, are incredibly unpopular. Never, never. We've never had a Hong Kong administration that's as unpopular as the one we have now.
1: You know, in your role of you know Financial Times Asia editor, um, obviously every day you're looking right across the region, not just at Hong Kong and the mainland uh, China, and obviously for New Zealand, this is the key trading region. Uh, I think last year, Asia took the count for about 58% of our exports, uh, which is a phenomenal number, and and even more phenomenal when you you look at the growth in such a short time. What are you seeing across the region in regards to New Zealand exports? uh, And in light of this new normal, um, where does New Zealand play in the long term? What is their kind of undeniable value in the region going forward? Has that changed, or is it still going to be the, the usual suspects?
0: so there's a couple of things i think that um first of all uh you know there are all sorts of markets you know remember southeast asia as a block is what seven eight hundred eight hundred million people right so there are vast markets um and new zealand doesn't produce that much actually when you you know compared to the size of these markets um i mean it, it sounds it doesn't it doesn't ring nicely to our egalitarian ears but you know, and I'm not the first person to say it, but, you know, shouldn't New Zealand be just focusing on sort of the the, the couple of million richest people in the world as our customers and, uh, you know, the people that we should be providing things for? Because if you look at what New Zealand has, I mean, it's a cliche, but, you know, clean, green, we have, you know, something that, that the rest of the world doesn't really have, right? So we have clean produce. We have, I, I sat in a meeting with um, a bunch of uh, MFAT people, uh decade more than a decade ago and I said uh, I quoted the at that time head of Goldman Sachs in China who said to me why doesn't New Zealand go entirely organic if you just go organic as a country you know you can you can raise the price of everything and you would be able to sell every single thing to the middle the rising middle class just in China and uh, you'd you'd you know but but New Zealand you know with its grass-fed incredibly valuable beef you know what we what we the majority of what we sell to america is not you know sirloin steaks it's ground beef some turn into hamburgers and mcdonald's it's so much more expensive to buy uh grass-fed beef uh especially if it comes from new zealand in, on a supermarket shelf in america at whole foods than it is to buy like a patty at mcdonald's but uh new zealand is, is sort of in some ways i think you know caught in this volume trap this idea that we sell volume uh whereas it's it, uh i mean you know it's done better I, I would say more recently but the idea being you know go up the value chain new zealand can only produce a certain amount it shouldn't go in for volume because also if you think volume when it comes to dairy volume and dairy means destroying the very thing that makes uh new zealand's product very valuable right if you're polluting all the rivers and suddenly new is not so clean and green and there's kind of a much more polluted than people realize, uh, then you've destroyed the basis of the value that you have. So, I mean, I think going back to first principles, New Zealand is about, uh, clean, uh, agricultural, uh, products. It's about, uh, you know, small scale innovation. It's about, um, you know, this unique culture and society at the bottom of the earth. Um, which is remote? It's the place everyone wants to be in the when the Armageddon, the apocalypse comes. You don't want to make it more like Australia or more like uh, you know China or more like America or more like Britain. You want to keep it unique and you want to keep it. You want to focus on what the unique selling proposition is because it has enormous value, right? So like, like I said, I mean, focusing on the very very high end and focusing on the the customers who can afford very high end. Seem, would seem to make the most sense. Now, when you talk about, uh, you know, the region, China is obviously the biggest market. It's the easiest market in some ways because it is a volume market to some extent. It's, you know, you can sell your product more, you know, for a higher price, but in larger volumes into China. But I, I, I mean, I think what you're seeing with Australia at the moment, um, uh, the tech can be turned off. China can get, you know, the Communist Party in Beijing can get angry at you for something that uh, one of your politicians says and they can switch off the, the market to a certain extent. And, you know, you don't really want to be in that position. You don't want to be beholden to a single large market that is controlled by an authoritarian dictatorship, I don't think. So, you know, the, the, the way that it's heading for most companies, frankly, uh, that have been in China for many years. And it's the way it's heading for most countries is, uh, countries like South Korea, Japan, Australia, uh, Thailand, uh, you can go through every country that, that has a you know, very high reliance on China and you, you will find a uh, diversification strategy. The Japanese government is now paying Japanese companies to leave China because they feel that there is an over-reliance on an unreliable partner um and they also feel that uh you know the the growth prospects in china have at least flattened out and um you know are probably going to be less uh exciting in the future so i mean i personally feel that uh, new zealand companies and the new zealand government should be following the same strategy of a, of a china plus 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 you know that, that uh china will be there and don't neglect it and don't ignore it but don't you know, put all your eggs in the China basket. It's absolutely crazy. Um, for a company, it's crazy because, you know, who knows what Jacinda or Winston Peters is going to say one day, that you know, even inadvertently, perhaps, um, which will offend some leader in the Communist Party, which will lead to your company being cut out of China. And, and I, I think, you know, that New Zealand companies in particular need to be clear there is a risk to that.
1: No, totally, Jamil, and I think we share a pretty similar sentiment here. Uh, I think even in the best of times that was the case, let alone with the US administration that increasingly looks like it wants to start a Cold War with China, Um, and New Zealand's going to feel a squeeze, whether or not we we want to or not. Um, There's a great African proverb I heard that when two elephants fight, it's the grass that gets destroyed. Um, and New Zealand is very much in that position, along with Australia, which we've seen recently, how quick and especially defensive China right now will go to the trade soft power to back up its harder diplomatic policies. Looking at that, and let's assume that is the case, and we want to diverse our portfolio, looking around the region, who have been the standout players? Um, We've got the powerhouses of uh, South Korea, Japan, Singapore, Who should we be doubling down on to get a bit more stability across our trade sector?
0: Uh, Like I said, I think Southeast Asia uh, has, you know, enormous um, potential, enormous possibilities, Um, very young populations, very rapid growth. You know, uh, uh, several of the economies in in Southeast Asia uh, uh, look like China 15, 20 years ago. You know, so they're at that sort of early, you know, earlyish takeoff point. Um, Vietnam, uh, you've got Thailand, which is a bit more mature. You've got Indonesia, which is a vast, uh, vast market. Um, you know, uh, of course, Japan, South Korea, uh, Singapore, a little bit smaller. I mean, but, but even if um, you kind of set aside China, New Zealand could probably sell everything that it produces as an export um, nation. without China it could sell it to to, uh you know to the rest of Asia even without Europe and, and North America um so you know I think there are there are real opportunities all throughout uh all throughout the region I I think personally that India uh eventually um will be an enormous and very very important opportunity for all uh you know for all exporters um Uh, You know, I was in uh, rural Uttar Pradesh last year, just before the election, and I was in these villages which have never had running water, they've never had electricity, uh, and everyone had a cell phone. It was amazing. These people are illiterate, but they all had phones connected to the internet, and that has happened in a five-year period. They've added something like 400 million, 500 million people uh, onto the mobile networks uh, in a four or five-year period. One company um, uh, has done that, Geo. Um, which is just astonishing and and provides all sorts of possibilities um, uh, for, for, you know, reaching new consumers. Okay. Not the most wealthy, not the people I was talking about earlier, the the sort of few million millionaires, you know, richest people in the world. But, you know, at the bottom end, there are all sorts of new consumers coming in uh, to the global economy. And uh, India is, is I think very interesting. Now it's a mess and it has been a mess forever and it will be a mess for quite a while, but, For a small, nimble uh, country like New Zealand with high-quality products, there are a lot of millionaires in in India as well, right? And uh, getting them excited by um, by New Zealand and what New Zealand has to offer, I think is is a good opportunity as well. So, yeah, I mean, look, it's a it's a vast region with uh, half the world's population and now half the world's economy. You know, it's it's uh, it's it's full of opportunities. I would I would say one thing. You mentioned. uh, the U.S. trying to start uh, a cold war. I just wanted to come back to that because if you go back uh, even to before Donald Trump, and you go back to really since Xi Jinping came into power, and you look at the kind of way that China has been heading since 2012, when Xi Jinping took the reins in Beijing, I think it's. I think it would be fairer to say that China has been moving uh, towards a more cold war stance. Um, Donald Trump is more direct about it, and uh, you know uh, he says whatever comes into his head, uh, a lot of stupid things. But um, but actually, what's really interesting to me is when I talk to people who were uh, very very senior in the Obama administration in the last few years of, uh, of the Obama administration, they were moving very. They had basically reached the same conclusions that the Trump administration reached early on, which is that uh, China. Uh, has set itself up under Xi Jinping in opposition to the West, in particular America. That, you know, America pursued for decades the idea of strategic engagement, the idea that, you know, we work with China and China will become increasingly democratic, it will become increasingly free as an economy. Um, But Xi Jinping reached uh, the conclusion that actually this was China's time, or appears to have reached the conclusion this is China's time, we don't need the West, we don't need America. Um, we 're going to sort of uh you know assert ourselves and so actually uh it was actually the late st- later stages of the Obama administration that recognized that China uh did not want to you know it you know, was moving you know the relationship towards a more cold war uh situation and so you know, it's, it's not about blame because everything is a reaction and a counter-reaction and, you know, I, I, I'm not going to get into the blame game. Whose fault is the Cold War? But actually this predates um, Donald Trump and it predates the uh, uh, the Trump administration and it's it's something that's been going on for a while. It's just accelerating rapidly and the, and the virus has is, is really put it into hyperspeed, I think.
1: I do tend to agree with China was on that path of... Uh, I I wouldn't have put it that they're looking for a cold war i would say that china had the confidence to start to take their own path in the global arena which they hadn't had up until the olympic games or the gfc crisis um, and when those two hit at the same time and they had this new found self-belief and they saw that the american idolization kind of came crashing down um, i think that was very uh, obvious that china then took this whole approach of you know what? We actually think our system's not too bad, and we're going to forge our own path uh, for a nation that probably rightly should uh, and rather than following an American uh, led uh, vision of how the world um, should be. so but i I'd take note that that did put it then at odds with the uh, the American vision of how China should be.
0: Let me just be clear, not just the American vision, the Japanese, Korean, Philippine, Indonesian, uh, Vietnamese, Indian, Mongolian, Russian, North Korean, the vision of everyone in the region, frankly. I mean, what what China has done is it's put itself on a path where it is now in opposition to basically every one of its neighbours. It is claiming territory that belongs in the minds of its neighbours to them. It is has uh, put itself on a very, very aggressive uh, path to basically snatching territory from everyone in its neighbourhood. So, you know, it's not just about you know, not following America or not being kind of America's lapdog. It's about, reassert, you know, asserting its power and influence in this region and pushing America out. And frankly speaking, there is not a single country in Asia that thinks that's a great thing or wants, you know, or wants America to leave. even countries that are not really friendly with America.
1: It's fascinating, these, these chats I've been having, especially in the last couple of weeks, Jamil, how, yeah, this really is about... Uh, New Zealand's export economy, our trade relations around the Asian region, and in particular, uh, helping New Zealand exporters get into market and understand what's happening in market during this COVID crisis. Uh, but what commonly happens in these talks is that it comes back to geopolitics right now, and I think we're getting a real harsh lesson in just how intertwined our economy is with geopolitics, and whether you're the guy trying to sell, um, you know, that hamburger up to America or selling A2 milk into China, uh, we do need a broader discussion in New Zealand around understanding uh, geopolitics because it has a huge effect on our trade and completely leads the trade relationship right now, especially during a time of crisis. So um, just a shout out to the listeners why we do dive into geopolitics because you know, without understanding what's going on in that space, you have no idea what's going to be happening in the trade space.
0: Yeah, I think if you want to... You know, if you want to be setting your strategy over the next, uh, you know, two, three, five years, most companies have a, a plan over the, you know, for what's going to happen next and where they're going to go and where they're going to put their investment. You you can't do that if you uh, uh, have no idea about the political context or where the potential dangers and risks lie. Um, and so, you know, geopolitics is is incredibly important. It's It's sort of the basis of, Uh, where you're going to end up in in a few years. Um, So you can't ignore it and you have to understand it.
1: Tamir, one thing, come back to a point that you made, and I think it's bang on, um, around protecting that which gives value to New Zealand's brand abroad, which is really a reputation around quality produce. And that's become even more so important with pretty much the tourism sector being put on ice, uh, education, overseas tourists, you know, dried up uh, for the foreseeable future. So we really are going to be relying on our primary industries uh, at least the next 12 to probably 18, 24 months to pull the export economy through. And you mentioned around the need to really uh, keep going for that high-end value add. One thing that I've probably been verging on, harping on about has been New Zealand's opportunity to position ourselves really as the wellness capital of, of the world. And getting away from just trying to push the attribute of pureness and clean and green, but actually bring it back to the consumer. This is about your wellness, and we've never had a global audience so in tune with their wellness, let alone baby baby boomers who finally feel a bit vulnerable, which they never have in their lifetime, uh, and they're extremely you know well off and and looking to spend that money in their in their kind of uh, retired years. So. In terms of this wellness, we can look at anything from education with sending children uh, to a safe nation, tourism with trusted adventure kind of sports, uh, food and beverage, obviously with traceability. And Asians see health as trust. They don't necessarily see it as being as well being. How do we really dive into that trust and leverage that reputation of trust? And what are some of the things we can do either at a government level or a private sector level to ensure we come through this COVID as the most trusted? nation in the world?
0: I mean, I have to say that I think that, um, uh, you know, the prime minister has done a very good job of, uh, projecting that image of, of, uh, trust, um, uh, by, by locking down. So, I mean, it may have economic, serious economic consequences, but by locking down so pretty quickly and so, so resolutely, I guess that has, um, that's perceived around the world as being, you know, uh, decisive action. And, you know, this is a country where they talk plainly and they, and they take action. And, uh, and, and it's not about sort of, uh, you know, pandering to this lobby or that lobby. Um, and, you know, so I think already the government's done a pretty good job. Um, you know, it is, it is trust for in, in government trust. uh, in in business is something as you know that you build up over a very long time and you can lose almost immediately right it's the sort of thing that one or two bad headlines can basically uh destroy a decade of of good work right um and uh so so i think that um it's one of those things that you just have to be very vigilant on you have to just sort of if you go back again to um the the fun, you know the, the milk scandals uh when Fonterra, you know, the melamine milk scandal, you remember in 2008 uh, in China, um, New Zealand actually got quite, um, did quite well out of that, ultimately, because it was the New Zealand government that tried to really force the Chinese government to admit that, they'd, that they had this really serious scandal where, where milk produced in China was being adulterated to beat protein tests so that you could water it down. And the the uh, chemical that was being put in the milk to beat the protein tests turns out it killed babies. So there were a whole bunch of dead babies, and it was horrible, horrible. But um, uh, it was actually the New Zealand government that that kind of uh, really, in the end, I think, forced the Chinese government to kind of go public on that. And if you remember, then there was the um, there was the scandal where there was some milk in New Zealand that was a, you know had been. Uh, tainted, and you know, New Zealand recalled everything, even though there were only like a couple of samples. Again, that's the sort of thing that um, you know. In the short term, it causes a lot of pain, but it, it builds trust over the long term, and it's something that's uh, that I think is very, very important. Like, think in the long term. Think about your brand and reputation over the longer term. Don't think about the you know the immediate hit that'll that you'll take from um, you know from from uh, you know recalling your product or whatever it is. Um, and I think a lot of businesses are looking at that right now. I interviewed the, the head of, um, uh, yum China, you know, she has 450,000 employees, uh, you know, 6,800 uh, KFC branches across China, you know, it's 4,000 4,000, um, pizza hut branches across, across China. And, you know, She decided at the very beginning. Okay, we're not going to fire anybody. Four hundred fifty thousand employees, and they shut more than thirty percent of their stores during the height of the COVID crisis. Not going to fire a single person. We're going to shut thirty percent of the stores, but we're not going to shut everything. Uh, And we're just going to, you know, this is how we're going to get through the crisis. Now, huge hit to the uh, to the bottom line, you know, in the short term, but built enormous trust amongst employees and amongst uh, amongst customers. frankly. So, you know, it's that kind of mentality uh, of, you know, thinking in the longer term, thinking about your brand and reputation much more than uh, thinking about what it'll cost you in the short term. I wanted to say something a bit more, it's, a, it's certainly a lot more esoteric, um, but I think it's really, really important. It gets back to this idea of trust and about the brand and the sort of how people feel about a country, right? I think there have been some really Worrying trends, distressing trends, in my opinion, over you know the last decade or so in New Zealand. I think corruption, frankly, is more uh, prevalent in New Zealand than people perceive. I think it's sort of uh, you know the, it's not really you know talked about as much and uh, sort of in general terms. I think it's it's there and it's there more than people people acknowledge. But there's a very specific thing that I think New Zealand needs to fix and needs to fix urgently. Because if we don't, I think it will lead to uh you know possibly irreparable damage to our, our longer term reputation, and that is our electoral finance laws and I know we don't you know we, we're really straying into politics, not even geopolitics this is domestic politics now but um but but actually this is incredibly important because um this. perception that we are a very clean not just clean environmentally but we're clean politically we're an uncorrupt country and we're uncorruptible that is so powerful and so important for investors it's so powerful for immigrants it's so powerful for everybody right it's so powerful for us and for our for our products because an uncorrupt country couldn't possibly sell you poisonous milk you see what i'm saying like there's there's a direct connection here now the problem we have is that uh in New Zealand, uh, we allow companies to uh, to give political donations uh, undeclared to our political parties. Through there are a bunch of loopholes in our electoral finance laws, um, which allow us, you know, allow companies, any companies, to give money to to uh, to our political parties. And there was a law brought in late last year, rammed through Parliament without any. Due process, which is unbelievably unusual, actually, in New Zealand. And they didn't uh, address the fundamental problems, which is that companies set up by anybody that just happened to be domiciled in China can give money to political parties and they can do it uh, through charity auctions, through charity dinners, which in a way where you can just disguise the entire amount. At, most New Zealanders, I don't think, realize that the single biggest donor in the last election cycle, uh, in uh, 2017, I guess, the biggest single donor was a Chinese citizen from Inner Mongolia who runs a horse racing uh, business, uh, if you can call it that, since horse racing gambling is illegal in China, and he's not only given money to the National Party, which is what he gave last time, he's given it to all political parties. So it's not he's not giving it out of the conviction of his heart because he truly believes in the platform of the National Party. He's obviously giving it for another reason, and uh, you know I, we can speculate on what that other reason might be. I mean, he he probably I I would assume, in my opinion, he believes probably that uh he's buying some sort of influence by giving large amounts of money to political parties now he was able to do that because he has a wholly owned subsidiary in new zealand which is a company in new zealand which can give money to political parties now is that the sort of thing that we should be allowing or encouraging in my opinion what new zealand needs to do urgently is ban donations from anything anybody apart from individuals if an individual wants to give money declared to a political party, they absolutely should be able to. We already have laws that supposedly ban uh, political donations from non-New Zealand citizens, but it's extremely easy to circumvent that. There's my little rant. No domestic politics, but it is incredibly important. It's connected directly to our to our global uh, reputation.
1: Absolutely, and yeah, you know, I've come at it from a similar theme, different angle, and that is around as you mentioned this. This idea of New Zealand being clean is absolutely imperative to any type of trade future for New Zealand in terms of differentiating ourselves from the Uruguay's, from the Chile's, uh, even from the Ireland's of the world, is to maintain this perception and the reality that we are the cleanest nation in the world. And that goes across our politics, it goes across our environment, uh, it goes, goes across our society as, as a whole. So um, no, I'm, I'm absolutely willing to listen to this rant um, and to you know hear these opinions about how do we keep that clean image. Talking of global images, uh, we've had a, a bit of a rising star come out of this crisis, and that has been our, our prime minister, uh, in terms of you know getting an international headlines, uh, really walking the talk on this idea of of uh, I guess a fair and clean approach to the communications that were given um, through the COVID crisis. What is the dollar value of having a leader like uh, Prime Minister Ardern, who we've really never had on a global scale in terms of foreign press, uh, and you you look at all the papers every day, um, has this got some real dollar value for us or is it going to be uh, forgotten about in a few months when everybody gets back to business as usual?
0: Uh, Prime Minister, her, her due credit. She has been a star almost since the day she was elected. Frankly, I mean, uh, there have been fawning headlines around the world since almost that moment she was elected, uh, when she became the first woman since uh, former, now deceased, uh, Pakistan Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto to to have a baby in office. She made headlines from that initially. Then, with the you know incredibly tragic events um, in Christchurch and her response to that, she made headlines again she made headlines when she kind of presented herself on the world stage as almost the anti-Trump um several times Uh, I think she's incredibly good at this she's she's uh she's got um you know the the instincts of a political PR genius right I mean she really has that um and I think that uh for for you know to put a dollar value I mean it's it's uh, priceless, as they say, right? I mean, this is this is incredibly, incredibly valuable. Um, now, the danger is, of course, that um, first of all, if if any politician or government gets too caught up in in that kind of presenting an image on the world stage, um, it, it it can be uh, problematic. Mo- not probably on the world stage, frankly, but it can be problematic domestically because if the perception sets in that this prime minister is all about, you know, looking good on the world stage, or, or, you know, being the anti-Trump and being sort of cool on the world stage. But is failing, and when it comes to domestic policies, that can cause a backlash uh, politically at home, um, and eventually that will, you know, cause a backlash in the in the headlines globally as well. Um, so that's, you know, there is a small danger there. Frankly, it's relatively small. Because, uh, but, but then, um, and it can be distracting, right? If you're sort of always seeking the next kind of uh, superstar global headline, then you know, how much time are you really spending looking at the really tough problems domestically? But it could also um, be problematic, I suppose, uh, over the longer term, because whoever comes next is going to be really in the shadow of, uh, of Saint Jacinda, as we've uh, dubbed her in the Financial Times. Um, one of my colleagues wrote a column uh, you know, uh, about Saint, Saint Jacinda. Um, a very complimentary one, by the way. Uh, so I think, you know, you, you, you can have a problem in that, you know, no prime minister for a long time is gonna be able to live up to that and is gonna be able to get that so same headlines. So when you, re- it's almost the key man, key person risk, if you see what I mean. You know, any company, uh, you know, tries to avoid having too concentrated the key person risk. And so there is a sort of, you know, a, a trade off. But you know, look, to give her, her due, um, I think it all comes from a genuine place as well. I mean, I don't think she's, uh, you know, she's a politician. All politicians are quite cynical, but I don't, I think when she, uh, you know, when she speaks from the heart, she is speaking from the heart. I think she is genuine in, uh, in her intent. And it's, and it's, you know, it's, it's gotten us a lot of good headlines, you know, before, before she came along, frankly speaking, headlines about New Zealand were sheep, uh, you know, people doing weird things and like kind of hobbits, maybe. You know, like the the average headline in the global global media on CNN on BBC, even in the Financial Times. You know, it was hard to get a headline in unless it was almost a joke story. You know, New Zealand was the source of kind of joke stories in the global media. It's like haha, New Zealand, and it hasn't been since. You know, or, or maybe an earthquake here and there. I mean, it's you know, it's it's sort of it's it's been harder in the past for New Zealand to to get noticed, and it's getting noticed for the right reasons now uh, rather than the wrong reasons. So, you know, it's, it's a good thing.
1: Oh, totally. I had a, a friend that we both know from the BBC who uh, once asked me, he said, give me a story about New Zealand. It's not cute and kind of feel-good factor. Yeah. You know? Cute or weird, Correct, right? correct. <laughs> and that was for many years. That wasn't just a passing comment. Jamil, wrapping things up, you know, bring out that crystal ball. Uh, you've got your head around the Asia, you know, landscape as well as any. How do you see things panning out in the kind of medium to long term? How rough is this storm going to be for New Zealand? And, you know, what are our best strategies for um, coming out uh, on top? Look,
0: I mean, we're predicting, basically, my colleagues and I, we talk about it a lot, but we're predicting, uh, you know, something on the scale of the Great Depression maybe worse. Um worse. Uh, you know, we think that uh, it's going to, you know, this is gonna last a really long time. Closed borders are probably here to stay. We're gonna see mass, mass unemployment. It's gonna be awful. It's gonna be really painful. We're gonna to have to retool our our economies effectively um, for this for this new reality. And I, I just think that, okay, you know, a vaccine might come along in the next, you know, year or two, that would make a big difference. But, but I think that um, a lot of the trends that were in place before the virus, uh, as I said, hyper accelerating. So some level of decoupling is going to happen. Um, I think the biggest uh, issue is going to be this decoupling that is coming between US and China for for whatever reason, for whoever's fault, you can argue it back and forth. But the new Cold War is already here in my opinion and it's going to get a lot worse. Uh, we, We should all pray and hope that it doesn't become a hot war um, if we can keep it a, a Cold War, that would be, I think, uh, a, a big win. But, um, but what it's going to mean is that you know, most countries, I think, in the world are going to have to basically choose. Are you in the uh, Western liberal democratic camp or are you in the, frankly, authoritarian uh, China dominated camp? And, you know, uh, I think that is going to end up making a lot of uh, economic decisions. For us, because I think that you know, New Zealand uh, wavers, frankly, now and then when it comes to trying to have and, and do. so of a lot of countries, Singapore and a whole lot of other countries, waver even more. You know, trying to be uh, economically reliant on China whilst being, you know, security, uh, you know, politically and uh, from a security standpoint, reliant on America. And I don't think that choice is really um, a viable one. Uh, is going to be a viable one in, in the near future, frankly. So countries will have to choose. Either you're going to be probably a bit poorer, but, but aligned with you know, the Western liberal democracies or, or you know, liberal democracies everywhere, or you're going to be maybe richer, but maybe not, uh, and aligned with um, you know, the authoritarian you know, countries led by China. So I think that is coming, and I think you know, everyone needs to prepare for that. And frankly, I know which I'd prefer. Um, having lived my entire adult life in an authoritarian, uh, increasingly totalitarian state, um, you know, but having been raised in a wonderful, liberal, egalitarian, liberal democracy, uh, obviously New Zealand, I know which one um, ultimately I'd prefer to certainly retire in, um, uh, and where I'd like my kids to, uh, you know hopefully end up.:
1: Well. Jamil, I know you've uh, you've managed to get yourself a little bolt hole on, on Great Barrier Island, so I'm sure you're going to find plenty of time to uh, relax away from the authoritarian states or the flesh point of Hong Kong. So, uh,
0: <laughs> I might create one. I might create one out on Great Barrier Island. You could, And I might eventually annex you <laughs> in mate. so be careful. So <laughs> Our authoritarian has deepened me now. It's, I've been here so long. So.
1: I really appreciate it, mate. This has been fascinating um we could talk for hours we'll do it again in person sometime um take care i know you're under the pump up there lots happening uh and look forward to reading your comments uh, in the ft and and uh we'll hope to keep back on asia hustle if we make it to a season two good luck man thanks a lot nice to see you Hey, pleasure take care thanks for tuning in to the latest edition of asia hustle You can check out all of our previous episodes at our website, asiahustle.com. And I also suggest you sign up to our newsletter so you can be notified of all the new additions that come out each week. Um, Also, another reason to sign up is that we will be taking a break at the end of the 10th show uh, while we reassess our plans moving forward with the podcast. And also whilst I uh, support my partner uh, as we give birth to our first child. So a bit of time out um, for a bit of important family time but when we come back uh we're really hoping to do something pretty special but the way to ensure that is to jump on facebook twitter linkedin leave us comments support and uh, some ideas how we can take this to the next level until next time do tune in every thursday and we'll catch you then